Turn in your Bible to Leviticus chapter 18. Leviticus 18. We're continuing our series to live in the presence of God. And Leviticus 18 continues the section of the book that began in chapter 17 and goes down through 25. It's a section that's often called the Holiness Code. Gives instructions for holy living. In other words, now that Israel's been rescued from Egypt, now that they've been given God's law, now that the tabernacle worship has been established, now that the Day of Atonement has pictured what it takes to enter God's presence, now that all of that has been given, how is Israel to live as God's people in God's presence? And this chapter, chapter 18, is a very important chapter. It's a little unusual. We're going to read just kind of a list of laws, and they're pretty... um, There are laws that maybe push our comfort level at times, that we're even talking about these things in church or in the Bible, but that's okay. And uh, because it's an important chapter, I want to take the time to actually show you the internal logic of the chapter, the way that this is put together. Because there is a reason, and it takes some digging to find it, so it's going to take a little time to explain. So this will be a longer message. I'm just kind of letting you know that ahead of time. But I'm going to move as quickly as I can while trying to give you a complete explanation. This chapter can be divided into three sections, and what I want to do this morning is give you a quick overview to begin with, so that you've got the big picture, and then we'll talk about each section in more detail. So here's the overview. Okay, Leviticus 18, the theme is the law gives life. There's three sections, verses 1 through 5 is the first section, it's kind of an introduction. And in these verses, we learn that the laws come in the context of covenant because the Lord keeps saying, I am the Lord. He's reminding them of the relationship. And God's people are to be distinct. He says, don't be like the land of Egypt where you came from. Don't be like the land of Canaan where you're going. You're supposed to follow my rules. God's laws lead to life. And we'll return to that idea at the end. Excuse me. Verses 6 through 23 are specific laws about relations, specifically physical relations between people. But let's think for a minute about the nature of the Bible. Okay, the whole Bible is inspired by God and it's without error. Inspired means God breathed. And it's telling us that the Holy Spirit guided the writing of Scripture, including Leviticus 18. But the human authors, with their personalities and their writing styles, were doing the writing. It wasn't dictation, where God just kind of told them what to write and they mindlessly just copied it down. No, they're thinking, they're engaging, they're writing intentionally. So Peter explains it this way. He says, no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the authors of scripture are thinking, they're reasoning, they're studying all under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And I think we can actually see that at work in this passage today in a unique way. And here's what I think is going on. As he's writing the book of Leviticus, Moses is reflecting back on what he's already written in Genesis and a little bit of Exodus. It's almost as if he's asking, do the relationships there, primarily in Genesis, set the pattern for what God's people should do? Can the Israelites read Genesis and Exodus and know that what they see there is permissible. And you'll see that we're almost able to watch the wheels turning in Moses' mind. 
as he's writing. We'll trace his thoughts through the stories of the patriarchs as he sets down the boundaries for appropriate relationships for God's people. Now, because that's the case, don't expect this list of rules to be exhaustive. Moses isn't dealing with every possible situation. It's limited to the kinds of relationships that he's considering as he looks back at Genesis. So it's not comprehensive. But th both the specific relations that, that actually happened in those stories and he kind of deals with like questions that might come up as you read the stories of Genesis. So there's this relationship, but what if it was this? And he kind of traces these stories out and gives the people of God some ethical rules about these relations. And after we've had a chance to examine it, we'll talk about what it is that God's communicating in this section because it's more than just a list of rules. Then the last section, verses 24 to 30, once these practices have been outlawed, now he says, these practices that you're not allowed to participate in defile the people and the land. So there's this corporate buildup of guilt from generation to generation, but God is never going to send his judgment on a generation that repents. But when the judgment, when the, when the guilt builds up in the, the final generation where that guilt is hitting the tipping point where God's going to act in judgment, if that generation persists in the same sin, God's judgment will fall. And that's kind of what it means by the land being defiled. And so we're going to see what that means, this, the, the idea that the land is defiled and God's people, as they go into the promised land, are to keep themselves clean and therefore keep the land clean. All right, so let's start, and I'm going to start in the middle today. So we're going to start with the section of verses 6 through 23, and the bulk of our time is going to be taken in explaining this. We're going to talk about these specific laws, and then we'll go back to verses 1 through 5, and then we'll look at the verses at the end as well. So... Look with me, um, beginning at verse 6, and just by way of introduction, I think maybe the best way to, to understand these laws is if you picture Moses in the wilderness with the children of Israel, and he's sitting down by the campfire at night each evening and writing more of the book of Leviticus, okay? And as he's sitting there around the fire, he's, he's now given all the instructions for right worship. He's writing about how the people of God are supposed to live holy lives. And he thinks back to the kinds of relationships God's people are supposed to have. He thinks back to the stories of the patriarchs, Noah, Moses, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And there's a lot of really bad examples. So what are we supposed to do with this? Are the people of Israel going to look back at those stories and say, well, they did it, so it must be okay for us to do it. And so Moses thinks back over these stories, beginning with Noah, and he uses the scenarios and situations from Genesis as the basis for writing these rules. And he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but he's thinking about, contemplating, reflecting on the stories of the patriarchs. And as we read, you'll hear the phrase, uncover the nakedness of someone. That's just a sanitized way of saying, have relations with. So Sometimes, and I'll just refer to it as have relations with someone. Sometimes marriage is in view in these laws, sometimes not. So I'm just going to generally call it have relations. Jump in with me in verse 6 of Leviticus chapter 18. None of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. 
Okay, so verse 6 gives us a general guideline that relations between close family members are prohibited. Okay, we would today call that incest. That's the kind of summary for verses 6 through 17. Then verse 7 gives us the first specific rule, and that tells us that relations with a father are prohibited. Okay? Now what Moses has in mind here is the story of Noah, back in Genesis chapter 9. As Moses thinks back, he starts with Noah in Genesis 9, and you have this story when they come out of the ark where Noah apparently gets drunk, and Ham, there's this potential abuse against the father. And the, the result of it is that Ham's son, Canaan, is cursed. But Moses just looks at that story and he says, okay, relations with a father, that's inappropriate. And then his mind goes to, okay, well, is there another situation where that happens. And there is, 10 chapters later, Genesis 19, and that's the story of Lot and his daughters. And a similar situation happens, even though it's daughters with a father rather than a son. And the connection there is drunkenness. There's drunkenness involved in both of them. Okay? And Moses' mind probably goes from one story to the other. Now, while he's thinking about that, his mind goes to a slightly different scenario. Look at verse 8. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. So while he's thinking about the idea of dishonoring a father, now his mind goes to dishonoring a mother, and his mind skips ahead to Genesis 35. Jacob's son Reuben commits an offense against his father by his relations with his father's wife, Bilhah. Okay, now we keep going. Verse 9, actually I'm going to read 9 through 11 now. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your sister, your father's daughter, or your mother's daughter, whether brought up in the family or in another home. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your son's daughter or of your daughter's daughter, for their nakedness is your own nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife's daughter, brought up in your father's family, since she is your sister. So we have three prohibitions here. The first one is relations with a half-sister, whether it's father's side, mother's side. Then we have relations with a granddaughter. And then we have relations with a half-sister, specifically same father, different mother. Okay? So what's the logic here? Well, Moses picks up where he left off in the story of Noah. And he goes to the next story that you encounter that has to do with the patriarchs and relationships. And it's Genesis 12. This is the story of Abraham's marriage to Sarah. And in Genesis 12, verses 10 through 20, Abraham and Sarah go down into Egypt. Abraham's afraid that Pharaoh is going to kill him and take his wife because she's beautiful. And so Abraham says, uh, she's my sister. Which is actually true. Sarah is Abraham's half-sister. They have the same father. But it raises the question of the propriety of marrying a half-sister, whether by the same father or same mother, whether brought up in the family or in another home, it says in the text. Literally, that means in the home or house or outside, and it could be translated at home or abroad. So Moses' mind is probably going, well, okay, they, Abraham and Sarah left, but um, would it be appropriate then for a relation to be with someone who's related, even if they lived in another land? There's like this geographical consideration in mind in the way that it's phrased. But as he's thinking about this, the prohibition of relations then with a granddaughter come to mind, probably because he's thinking, again, the story of Abraham, and as it proceeds, you have the story of Lot, Abraham's nephew, which is part of the Abraham story. And 
Lot's daughter's husbands are killed in God's judgment on Sodom. The daughters get their father drunk so they can have relations with him under the reasoning that, chapter 19, verse 31, there's not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Now, Moses has already ruled about this prohibition back in verse 7 against relations with a father, but the reader of Genesis going through the Genesis stories knows that what the daughters of Lot say isn't entirely true. There is another man who's related who would be a possible solution for them, and that is Abraham. Abraham's still able to bear children. We see that a couple chapters later. And Moses doesn't really comment on whether that's prohibited, a man and his grandniece. But as he thinks about the relations, you've got the father, Lot. You've got the granduncle, Abraham. There's one relation in between those two, one that's closer than granduncle, but not as close as father, and that's grandfather. So is the relationship between grandfather and granddaughter permissible? And the answer is, verse 10, no. As Moses then continues thinking back on the stories of Genesis, he comes in his mind to Genesis 20 and verse 12, where the same story happens again with Abraham and Sarah. This time it's not in Egypt, it's in Canaan. It's with the king Abimelech. But Abraham says, again, she's my sister. But this time the text specifies that the relation is they have the same father. And so verse 11 says specifically, you're not allowed to marry your half-sister who has the same father as you. Why? I mean, isn't that already covered in verse 9? Yes, it is. But as he's going through the stories of Genesis, now we've got more specific information. And so he specifically says, like the story of Abraham and Sarah. Just to get really specific is what Moses is saying. That would not be appropriate today. Okay? As we keep going then, let's look at verses 12 and 13. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's sister. She's your father's relative. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister, for she's your mother's relative. So here we have a prohibition against relations between a man and his aunt. And as Moses contemplates the story of Abraham, which moves from Lot and his daughters, Genesis 19, to Abimelech and the whole specific relation of Abraham and Sarah, Genesis 20. Then we go Genesis 21, it's the birth of Isaac. And as Moses contemplates the relationships, he goes, huh, you know, Isaac's mother is actually his aunt. Once you think about it, because Abraham and Sarah are brother and sister. So Isaac's mother, Sarah, is not just his mother, but she's also his aunt. Now, he's not suggesting anything inappropriate between Isaac and Sarah, but the unusual relationship kind of gets him thinking about the family line of Abraham. Is there a place in the story where a descendant of Abraham does marry his aunt? Isaac didn't marry Sarah, but the unusual relationship just kind of raises the question, and he's thinking about these different relationships. And yes, there is a place where descendants of Abraham have a man who marries his aunt. It's Moses' parents. So Exodus chapter 6 and verse 20 tells us, Amram, that's Moses' father, took as his wife Jochebed, his father's sister. And she bore him Aaron and Moses. So even though this is closely related to Moses, he rules it out for the people of God. So both of these situations, Abraham 
with having Sarah as his sister and Amram marrying his aunt Jochebed occur originally in the context of danger or oppression from a pharaoh in Egypt. I'm not sure what the significance of that is. But they also both occur before Israel's really become a nation, before God's laws have been revealed. Closer kind of kinship relationships were necessary and appropriate when there were fewer people. So who did Cain marry? Had to be his sister. Who did Seth marry? Had to be a sister or a niece or something. I mean, Noah, you know, his kids and their, his, his sons and their wives are on, on the ark. After things get started again there, who do his grandkids marry? It's got to be their cousins, right? I mean, that's just the way things got started. And so in the kinship relationships, cousins was kind of the appropriate relationship that you were looking for. Think about, for instance, Jacob. When he goes to find a wife, Abraham set the pattern with Isaac. I, I don't want it to be someone from Canaan. Go back to our family and find someone there. Well, Isaac does the same thing with his son, Jacob. So Jacob goes back and he finds his uncle Laban. And Laban has two daughters, Leah and Rachel. And that's who he ends up marrying. So you have... Uh, Cousins getting married. That's kind of the standard way that things were happening. But at this point, Moses is kind of giving you what's appropriate and what's not. All right. Um, verse 14. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's brother. That is, you shall not approach his wife. She is your aunt. So you, you can think your, um, your father's sister is more specifically blood related to you. But Moses says, even if it's not your aunt that way, if it's your aunt by your father's brother's wife, that still is prohibited, he says. Okay? Now, the word for aunt in Exodus 6 that's talking about Jochebed, Moses' mother, is a generic word for aunt, like our word for aunt. It works for either kind. Okay? So while he's contemplating the situation of his own parents, his mind goes to the next related possibility that this generic word could imply. And Moses rules that a man should not have relations with his father's brother's wife. Moses is also probably here thinking about Isaac's situation. Isaac's born late in life. His parents are really, really old. So he's not the same age as, for instance, his cousins. He's of a very different generation. So let me just show you the kind of family relations here. This one's complicated, so I put a family tree on screen so you can visualize it. Okay, Abraham, his father's name's Terah, and he's got two brothers, Nahor and Haran. And then his sister, by another wife, is Sarah, right? So Terah has Sarah through another wife. So Abraham and Sarah get married, and they have their son Isaac, but it happens very late in life. On the other side here, Haran has a son named Lot. So Lot is Abraham's nephew, and we're familiar with Lot from the stories of Genesis. Abraham and Lot travel together for a while. Haran also has a daughter named Milcah. Milcah, when she gets married, marries her uncle Nahor. Okay? So she's married her uncle Nahor, and um, you can see how the relationships kind of start to get complicated here. But what happens then is they have a son named Bethuel, and Bethuel has a son named Laban and a daughter named Rebekah. So when Isaac goes to get married, he's looking for someone in the family, but someone his own age or close to it. 
And that's Rebecca. So Isaac marries Rebecca, which is kind of his, uh, in some ways, his great-grand-niece. It's also his first cousin twice removed. It's also, I mean, it's, it's, there's a number of relationships going on here, right? You, you, you can kind of see that complication. Well, at some point, Nahor dies because when Rebekah is introduced in Genesis 24, she's introduced as the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah. You wouldn't introduce Bethuel as the son of Milcah if Nahor was still around. And then it's explained that Milcah was the wife of Nahor. So that marriage no longer exists. Which I think leads Moses to say, well, okay, in theory then, when Isaac was getting married, his cousin Milka was available. So could they have gotten married? And his answer is no, because Milka was also his aunt. <laughs> Clear as mud? You following the, the family line here? But this is what Moses is doing as he's rolling through the stories of Genesis. He's thinking about all these relationships, and that's what makes sense of all the rules here in Genesis chapter 18. So the rule is about relations with the wife of your father's brother. So Moses says, no, that's not appropriate. Okay? All right. Verses 15 through 17 then of Leviticus 18. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your daughter-in-law. She's your son's wife. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It's your brother's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of a woman and her daughter. You shall not take her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter to uncover her nakedness. They are relatives. It is depravity. So here we have prohibitions against relations with a daughter-in-law, a sister-in-law, or a wife's daughter or granddaughter. So as Moses is going through these different stories in Genesis, he comes to the story of Judah and Tamar in Genesis 38. Judah is one of the 12 sons of Jacob. He marries a Canaanite woman. They have three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. The oldest son, Ur, marries a woman named Tamar. But God kills Ur for some unspecified wickedness before they have kids, which means, according to custom then, that Tamar is given to the next son, Onan. Onan does not fulfill his duty. God kills him. And so now Tamar, according to tradi tradition, would be given to Shelah. But Shelah is too young at this point, And their father, Judah, thinks that Tamar is the one that God is cursed. And that's why his sons are dying. So he doesn't want to give Tamar to Shelah. Tamar, though, wants to have kids. So she tricks and seduces Judah. And so now she's had relations with two generations in the same family, Judah and two of his sons. Now, with that scenario in mind, you think through, okay, well, this is starting to make sense of what is said here. Okay? Prohibition against um, a sister-in-law also comes from this story because Moses is telling us that people should no longer operate according to this custom of giving a wife to the next brother. But it's just a general prohibition, too, against marrying your sister-in-law. And then the rules and relations about a woman and her daughter also comes from this story. Now Moses, in the case of every rule, he's giving it in terms of the man. What should a man do? But that's just the reverse here of what the scenario is for Tamar. Okay? Tamar's experience is relations with two generations of men. And so Moses rules on that. 
when Onan dies, Shelah's too young to marry, so he's not quite of the same generation in some sense as his brothers. And Moses is maybe reflecting on that, and he goes, well, relations are not just prohibited with the daughter, but even if it skips a generation, if you're two generations away, that's still not appropriate. And so he rules on that. Now, that's the end of the incest laws. We move on now to other kinds of laws. So verse 18. And you shall not take a woman as a rival wife to her sister, uncovering her nakedness while her sister is still alive. So this rule says a man may not take his wife's sister to also be his wife. So from considering the story of Tamar, who had relations with multiple generations and multiple brothers, though all one at a time, Moses' mind now goes to relations with multiple family members at the same time. It's the story of Jacob who marries both Leah and Rachel, sisters, in Genesis 29. Even though his marriage to Leah was through de the deception of his uncle Laban. Verse 19, you shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness while she's in her menstrual uncleanness. So this rule says a man should not have physical relations with a woman during the time of her monthly cycle. We covered that back in Leviticus 12. And since Moses' mind is now on Jacob and his wives, another aspect of the Jacob story comes up. Someone, when, when Jacob and his wives have left Laban's household, Laban comes chasing after them because someone has stolen his household gods. And the story tells us that it's Rachel. She hid them in the camel's saddle. She's sitting on that saddle. And when Laban comes in, she uses her monthly cycle as an excuse to say, I can't get up right now and he can't approach. So, so Jacob's story allows Moses' mind to make the connection from marrying sisters to the issue of menstrual uncleanness and not being able to approach, and he includes the rule that we have in verse 19. Then we have verse 20. You shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife, and so make yourself unclean with her. This rule outlaws adultery. So as Moses is thinking about a woman's monthly cycle, physical relations, and all of that, his mind likely goes from Rachel back to Sarah, because Sarah was past the point of monthly cycles and, and, and all of that stuff, past the point of being able to have children when God gives her the promise that she's going to give birth to Isaac in Genesis 18. So after the detour in Genesis 19 about Lot and his daughters, then Genesis 20 is the story of Abimelech that we already talked about where Moses says, hey, she's my sister. Abimelech takes Sarah into his harem, but God prevents the adultery. He brings it to Abimelech's mind before anything can happen. But that's where the story of adultery comes to Moses' mind and he puts down this rule about adultery. Then we have verse 21 you shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. This rule outlaws offering a child to Molech. Now what's translated in the ESV as offer them literally means make them pass through, as in make them pass through the fire because that's how you offered a child to Molech. They were offered in fire, burned alive. How on earth does this fit in in this list of rules? Well, as Moses is thinking through these stories in Genesis, the next story after the Abimelech story in Genesis 20 is the birth of Isaac in Genesis 21, and then Genesis 22, Abraham ready to offer Isaac in fire to the Lord. 
And so Moses is thinking about this. And he, children are a direct result of the kinds of relations he's talking about. So this fits in his list of rules for holy living. He doesn't want the Israelites to read the story of Abraham almost sacrificing Isaac and conclude that it would be okay for them to offer their children to Molech. Verse 22. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. So this rule outlaws homosexual relations. As Moses reflected on the stories of Genesis, he had skipped from Sarah's old age to the prevention of adultery with Abimelech, chapter 18 to chapter 20, and he followed that trail out to Isaac. But now, having skipped over Genesis 19 in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, he kind of says, well, now that we're talking about fire, let's go back to Sodom and Gomorrah, because Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed by God's fire from heaven. Why? Because of the sin of homosexuality, a deviance from God's design. And so Moses gives a rule against it. Then we have verse 23. And you shall not lie with any animal, and so make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with it. It is perversion. This rule outlaws bestiality. Now at one level, this is just a simple, one more level of deviance away from homosexuality. But there actually is another connection here too. As Moses is thinking about the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and the angels who visited that city and the abuse of those visitors that was attempted, his mind goes to another story in Genesis where a visitor to a city is abused. And that's the story in Genesis 34 of Dinah, who is Jacob's daughter. And she comes into the Canaanite city of Shechem to see the women of the land. And the man, Shechem, the Hivite, the son of Hamor, took her and had relations with her. Then as a result, Dinah's brothers come exterminate all the people of the city. And the connection here is, on one level, beyond just the, the idea of deviance from God's design, just like what was attempted in Sodom, here a visitor to the city is violated and the city faces massive judgment. But the connection to bestiality is found in that Shechem is the son of Hamor. And Hamor's name means donkey. So you have here, essentially, a daughter of Israel having relations with a son of a donkey. And that may have been enough in Moses' mind to say, while I'm at it, why don't I cover this one too? Okay, so that's the end of this series of laws. Let me give you one final observation on the series of laws before we talk about the bookends at the beginning and ending of the chapter. We began with the story of Noah and his son Ham, and as a result of that sin, his son Canaan is cursed. We end in the land of Canaan with the Canaanite cities of Sodom and Shechem. As Moses writes, the Israelites are on their way to Canaan. Will they adopt the ways of Canaan? Or will they be different? Will they be holy? Will they follow a different set of ethics? Now that God has given them his law, they have direct revelation of his will for their lives. They know what God expects. God's made a covenant with them as a nation. They're supposed to be holy, unique. They belong to him. They're not to take their cues from the people around them, but from God's law. And that brings us back to verses 1 through 5. So go back with me to verses 1 through 5. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, 
I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived. You shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. And if a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. I think Moses is considering the law of God that has been given to Israel. And he's asking the question, how are the Israelites in future generations going to make ethical decisions about relationships? Where are they going to look? One natural place for them to look is the stories of the patriarchs. But those stories are full of relationships that do not conform to God's law. So which standard will they use? Will they say, well, God's law says this, so that's what we're going to do? Or will they say, well, the patriarchs did this, so it's okay for us too? So Moses is here clarifying. The law of God says yes to this and no to that. And here's the point. You're not to be like the Egyptians where you came from or the Canaanites where you're going. Your standard is not even to be the lives of the patriarchs. There were plenty of places where they were no different than the peoples around them. But you, your standard is to be the law of God. And when you live by God's law, you will find life. Because God's design is best. Now, I want to briefly show you a few other places in Scripture where that connection comes together. So, Psalm 119, if you know Psalm 119, it's the longest chapter in the Bible. And it's divided, it's, it's an acrostic based on the Hebrew alphabet. So there's 22 letters. And each Hebrew letter of the alphabet gets one section of eight verses that starts with that letter. I want to show you one section. So this is verses 153 through 160. Listen for the connection between law and life. Look on my affliction and deliver me, for I do not forget your law. Plead my cause and redeem me. Give me life according to your promises. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek your statutes. Great is your mercy, O Lord. Give me life according to your rules. Many are my persecutors and my adversaries, but I do not swerve from your testimonies. I look at the faithless with, with disgust because they do not keep your commands. Consider how I love your precepts. Give me life according to your steadfast love. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Next, let me show you Deuteronomy 30. This is after the second giving of the law. Deuteronomy 28 and 29, we have blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. And then in chapter 30, Moses gives this summary of the law and what God is saying to the people. And listen for the connection between life and land and even worship, but particularly life and land as you think about God's law. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. 
I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to them. Following God's law leads to life. It's good. And the connection there to the land, you saw it in verse 16, verse 18, verse 20. It's there as well in Leviticus 18. Is our concern for holiness the same as God's? Or do we ignore God's law and treat it as if it's not relevant today? I think I explained this a couple weeks ago, but I want to touch on it again because it's helpful to get your mind around how to think about God's law there's three aspects of the Old Testament law as you look at it. The moral law, the ceremonial law, and the civil law. The moral law is like most of the Ten Commandments. It expresses God's unchanging moral standard based on his unchanging character. These laws are still in force because God's character and God's standard never change. No murder. No stealing. The ceremonial laws are the things like the sacrifices and the feasts and the priests and clean and unclean and all of that stuff. That was typological. It was a type. It was a picture. It was pointing to Jesus. That was its purpose. And now that Jesus has come, those laws have served their purpose and they're no longer in force because their fulfillment has arrived. The civil law is the national expression for the nation of Israel of God's moral laws. It's case law. Case law takes underlying moral principles and illustrates those principles in particular cases or scenarios so that people learn how to apply the principles. So the principles remain because they're based on God's unchanging moral standard, but the particular ways they're applied might change. So, for instance, in Deuteronomy 22, there's a rule that says you've got to have a fence around the roof of your house. I don't have a fence around the roof of my house. Why? Because if you lived in Israel and it was hot, at the end of the day, when the sun started going down, you went up on the flat roof and you lived up there for a good part of the day, every day. And as the sun goes down and it gets dark and people are up there with you, you don't want them wandering off the edge of your roof and falling and getting hurt. So everybody's supposed to put a fence around the roof of their house. But we don't do that today because we don't live on the roof of our house. But we do put a fence like a railing down the edge of a stairway. And we do do other things as precautionary measures to help people out based on this principle. Even Jesus and Paul assume that the law is still in force. So when Paul writes to the church, he says, regarding your pastor, he says, pay your pastor because the Old Testament law says, don't muzzle the ox while it's treading out the grain. Meaning, give the ox the freedom it needs to do the work it's called to do and provide for its needs so that it can do its work. He applies that principle to pastors. He doesn't say, here's a law that doesn't matter anymore, but I'm going to use it as an illustration. He just assumes that that law is still valid. It's an animal husbandry law. 
still valid today, although the application is different. So should God's law continue today? Well, the moral law, yes, because it's God's unchanging standard. The ceremonial law, no, we don't need to because it's been fulfilled in Christ. The civil law, yes, in the general equity. That's, that's the way the Westminster Confession talked about it. The general equity, the principles still apply. And think about our culture today. Do we want God's law as a standard in our culture today? There has to be a standard for every area of life. So in the legal realm, there's a standard on which the law is based. In the government, what's the standard by which it operates? In the, the field of medicine, what's the standard? In the field of education, what's the standard? Every standard, or every field has a standard, and the right standard the best standard according to which all of life runs is God's standard. See, at the end of the day, there's only two choices. Cornelius Van Til pointed this out. It's either theonomy or autonomy. Theonomy comes from two words, theos and namas, God, law. So there's God's law, theonomy, or there's autonomy. Auto means self, so self-law. Either we accept the standard God has given us, or we come up with a different one ourselves. Those are the only two choices in every area of life. So our courts used to protect rights that were given by God. Now they grant rights and create rights. People say, well, it wouldn't be loving to have God's law. Well, think about how Jesus treated this. When Jesus is asked, what's the greatest commandment, the greatest law, what does he say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second one is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, when you understand the law, that is perfect love. So yes, God's law is the expression of love. And that concept leads us to what we're told at the end of Leviticus 18. So look at verses 24 to 30. Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things. The whole list of laws that Moses gave, okay? For by all these, the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean, and the land became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules, and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For the people of the land who were before you did all of these abominations, so that the land became unclean lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean, as it vomited out the nation that was before you. For everyone who does any of these abominations, the person who does them shall be cut off from among their people. So keep my charge never to practice any of these abominable customs that were practiced before you, and never to make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. You could easily read this list of rules in Leviticus 18 and think, well, that was Israel. They had a special relationship with God. They were in covenant with him, and we're not today. Well, that's true, but God deals with the other nations in terms of obedience and disobedience, blessing and cursing. So here, in Leviticus 18, God's talking about the other nations, not the ones that were in the land before Israel. Nations that were not in the same kind of covenant with God like Israel was. But they're still held to the same standard. 
and their land becomes unclean by their sin. And this can be true of our land today. We're not in covenant with God like Israel was. But we are in covenant with God in the same way that the nations of Canaan were. And the other lands, we're still responsible to him. And the sins of our land can make our land unclean. And God has every right to come in judgment on us. God has every right to make this land vomit us out because of our sin. Genesis 15, God's talking to Abraham and he says, listen, I, I, I brought you to this promised land. I'm going to send you down into Egypt and eventually you're going to come back into this land, but it's going to be four generations before that happens. And he says, they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. What does that mean? He's saying the Amorites are in the land and they're sinful, and their sins are filling up, filling up, filling up, but it's not filled up yet. My judgment is not ready to fall on them yet, but it's coming. And so, when the time comes, if they don't repent, if they don't turn, then my judgment will fall. They will be vomited out of the land, and the land will be given to the Israelites. And that's what happens. Numbers 21, Israel dispossesses the Amorites because God kicks them out. God calls the nations all nations, to kiss the sun. Psalm 2, what we read at the beginning. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot a vain thing? Right? God sits in the heavens. He laughs at the nations. Let me just show you what he says to the nations. The last three verses that we read this morning. Psalm 2, verses 10 to 12. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. What kings is he talking about? He's not talking about the kings of Israel, although they can be included. This is all kings. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. All nations of the earth are accountable to God. They are to serve the Lord with fear. Listen to how God says this to Israel in Deuteronomy 4 as he's introducing that second giving of the law. Israel's supposed to be an example to the nations. Here's how he says it. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I'm teaching you and do them that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor. For the Lord your God destroyed from among you all the men who followed the Baal of Peor. But you who held fast to the Lord your God are all alive today. See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them. And do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. You hear how when Israel follows God's law, the other nations are supposed to see that and go, man, that looks good. Following God's laws, that looks like the way to go. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law 
that I set before you today. When God judged Sodom and Gomorrah, he did it on the basis of his law. When he judged Nineveh, what did he judge Nineveh on the basis of? His law. He sent Jonah, and Jonah comes and he says, you got 40 days. Why? Because the iniquity of Nineveh was almost full, and God's judgment was going to fall on that generation. But what happened? They repented. Did God's judgment fall on that generation? No, because they repented. They embraced the Lord. Now, future generations turned back to the sin, and then God's judgment fell. But God judges the nations on the basis of his law, his standard. So Amos prophesies to the surrounding nations about their sin. And he does it based on Deuteronomy 28 and 29. If you obey, you'll be blessed. If you disobey, you'll be cursed. And when those nations are judged, that's the basis that they're judged on. Now, historically, Christians have thought this way. If you went back in history and looked, for instance, at the United Kingdom, England, Scotland, Ireland, they had the Solemn League and Covenant, where they said, we're going to actually officially, as a nation, covenant with God. But even today, like if you look, the current queen in England, Queen Elizabeth, if you look at her coronation oath, it's interesting to hear what's in there. Let me read to you what's in there based on Deuteronomy 28 and 29, okay? The blessings and the cursings. She's asked this question. Will you, to the utmost of your power, maintain the laws of God and the true profession of the gospel? Will you, to the utmost of your power, maintain in the United Kingdom the Protestant Reformed religion established by law? Will you maintain and preserve inviolably the settlement of the Church of England and the doctrine, worship, discipline, and government thereof as by law established in England? And then the moderator of the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland brings her a Bible. He gives her a Bible. So picture this. He's giving her the Bible and he says, Our gracious queen, to keep your majesty ever mindful of the law and the gospel of God as the rule for the whole life and government of Christian princes, we present you with this book, the most valuable thing this world affords. Here is wisdom. This is the royal law. These are the lively oracles of God. Even in the United States, when a president takes the oath of office, they usually have one hand raised, but the other hand is resting on a Bible. Now, that's just tradition. There's nothing that says it has to be that way, and not every president has done that. But it used to be tradition that they not only had their hand on the Bible, the Bible was open, and not just open, it was open to Deuteronomy 28 and 29. Blessings for a nation that obeys, curses for a nation that disobeys. So what do we see in our culture today? Well, we're disregarding God's law. So Cambridge, Massachusetts has said that polyamory is okay. That's the next train in the car of deviance that's coming. And if you think the things that we read in Leviticus 18 aren't on the horizon, I'm telling you, they're coming. Alberta, Canada this week seized the property of Grace Life Church. Won't let them meet because of an unlawful health mandate in a place where they have no rightful authority. Our own nation is systematically repealing the laws which conformed to God's law. What's the solution? The solution is revival and reformation. It's got to come from the Holy Spirit breathing new life into people and then it's reformation. 
we've got to be turning back to God's law. Let me just finish this morning with Jesus and Leviticus 18. This is Luke chapter 10. And this is the introduction to the story of the Good Samaritan. It says this, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What's written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. So the question's about obtaining eternal life. Jesus says the answer's in the law. Now, that doesn't sound right to us today. Jesus doesn't say, though, the law doesn't matter anymore. Jesus says the law will reveal how to have eternal life. But what does that mean? Well, the lawyer answers with the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That was the same answer that Jesus gave when he was asked about what the greatest law was. And Jesus says, do this and you will live. Essentially, Jesus is quoting Leviticus 18, verse 5. And Jesus' answer works on two levels. First, eternal life. You want eternal life? Keep the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. But here's the problem. You can't do it. No one can. Martin Luther said, if the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, then the greatest sin must be to love him with anything less. You can't do it. But Jesus can. And Jesus did. And that's why Jesus, as your substitute, can both pay the price for your sins and give you his righteous standing. That's how you can have eternal life, by believing in him. But it's not in violation of the law. It's through Jesus who kept the law. And second, God's law also leads to life in the sense that following God's law is living the way God has designed, living life to the full. A person will never have true joy and fullness of life living in defiance of God's law. And a nation will never have God's blessing when it persists in defying God's law. And so every one of us needs to be submitted to the law of God. And as God's people, we can do that in gladness and gratitude and recognition that God's law is a blessing to us because of Christ. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see your law the way that you do, that in it you reveal your gracious purpose for us, that we would take holiness seriously and that we would take grace seriously as well, the gift of righteousness that Jesus has given to us. May we live in a way that pleases you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.